Yeah, so welcome, and you you all can hear me back there okay, too? Good. Yeah, I think this mic is good. And um, thank you. I think this is, I was trying to count up a while ago, and I, I think it's like our fourth full day. Thadu, 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 or sadu, 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 which means well done, well done, and well done. IMS uh, holds a, a special place in my heart. In I think it was 1983, I was here with uh, my teachers, uh, Burmese teachers, Tumpulu Sero, Lindit Sero, Pakoku Sero, and some other monks. And um, they created an ordination site here on this land. It's called a Sima. And um, it's a, oh, you could say it's like about 40 feet long, 40 feet wide, and it's divided into little boxes that are two meters by one meter or three feet by six feet. And they demarcated each of these little boxes and then five monks squatted in each box and they recited particular type of chanting to consecrate this land. It took them actually a few days to do this. And so a Sima is a place where ordinations can happen as well as uh, on the new and full moon of the month they recite what's known as the Padimokha or the rules of discipline. The monastics have... Um, 227 precepts. The nuns have more because <laughs> they're special. And um, but this is a very you know and I I I haven't been here for some years now and I was walking in the snow and and it's in the back behind the dorms. There's actually four cement pillars demarcating the land and. I was looking at it, and then I saw somebody ahead of me just walk in the snow and walk and start to walk back and forth between two of the cement pillars, and I was so touched. So I don't know, whoever you are, it was a guy, <laughs> that you, you were walking on uh, the, the boundary of, of the Sima. And then you inspired me, and I did three rounds going around the SEMA, and just this opportunity to reflect on all of my teachers that are now passed on. And just how poignant this life is. So I want to just offer the, my offering today to, to all my teachers that I feel so blessed to have. So yes, we're in this heart of the retreat, and you know maybe as a metaphor goes, um, 
Well, actually, maybe before I, I say that, in, in my groups, and I've been very touched with what people have been sharing, and there was one conversation in one group about their dream life during the retreat, and it sometimes isn't talked a lot about, but this, I know from my experience there's a lot of dreams happening. You, vivid dreams. Yeah, I'm seeing heads nod, yeah. So I just want to just name that, and... Uh, I, you know, I, I can remember particularly a couple of dreams I had on retreat 40 years ago, and I'm still learning from them. They inform. So honor those dreams. Honor them. They, I, I look at it as every single part of the character of that dream is myself, a different aspect. Bringing up my fears, my joys, my fantasies, my difficulties... Just whatever's there. Sometimes it doesn't make any sense at all. Here's a dream I want to share with you that uh, the American poet Mary Oliver, she dreamt this one night. (laughs) It came to her in a dream. It's called The Uses of Sorrow. She says, yeah, in my sleep I dreamt this poem. And it says that someone I loved once gave me a box full of darkness. Someone I loved once gave me a box full of darkness and it took me years to understand that this too was a gift. Someone I loved once gave me a box full of darkness and it took me years to understand that this too was a gift. So there's gifts here. There's gifts here. may not feel like a gift at first, but... Who knows inside that, that, within that box, there is a gift. The Persian poet Hafiz will speak about that there's a ruby buried inside there. But sitting in retreat, we sit with our lives. Sometimes it's walking into a hall of mirror starring me, myself, and I. Ay, 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 ay. So it's like everywhere you turn, it's me, 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 me. <laughs> all learning, all teachers. And perhaps these deep questions come up of, who am I? What is this? Again, this is the, the, the messengers awoken Siddhartha. Like, what, what is this? A scientist, uh, Rod McClaver, he asked this wonderful question, a perennial question, why do we exist There's 50 trillion cells that make up the human body, and each of those cells in turn consists of atoms, countless millions or billions of them, depending on the function of a specific cell. And of the atoms, they consist mostly of empty space, protons and neutrons surrounded by electrons. Empty space, just like the universe, is mostly empty space. The human body, this empty, this entity of mostly empty space is a space held together, a space unified by a life force for a period of time. The atoms existed before the human body and they'll exist after this life is gone. But in the meantime, in this short interval, these atoms are held together. 
kind of entering into the mystery. My son, uh, Ben, from a very early age, he was interested in the universe and those times where we uh, lived in the country. And often at night, he'd sit on my lap and we'd look out at the stars. And that interest carried him through school and graduate school, and he ended up becoming uh, an astrophysicist. And his particular area of study is dark energy. And when I asked him, Ben, what is dark energy? He says, we don't know. (laughs) But what they know is that there's some type of indescribable force that is expanding the reaches of the the universe. And I said, but how can you know that? And he goes, well, you have to think big here, Dad. That, like a supernova is like, like in the ocean, there's like these little buoys. Well, a supernova is a buoy. And you can measure from one supernova to another with mathematics and whatever, and you can somehow begin to figure out of this expansion of the universe. But then I said, I, isn't the universe endless? I mean, like, how can you know it's growing? Because isn't, isn't it just everywhere? He goes, we don't know. <laughs> it's just darn mysterious. In uh, my graduate school, which was an alternative one, I had a very beloved Zen teacher that I studied with for a few years. His name was Bishop Nipo Siaku. And he was particularly in this type of Zen of the teachings of Nargajuna and the Majjhima Karika, which it's um, a vast teaching. I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> glad I can pronounce it. And, um, but he, he, used to say, he used to say this. I loved it. He used to say, every day I know less and less. Someday I will know nothing. That was, that's kind of like the graduate school. Like every day I know less and less. Someday I will know nothing. And Jack Kornfeld says it in a kind of an, a different way. I heard him say this. He goes, when I was young, I didn't believe in anything. Now that I'm old, I believe in everything. So the mystery of things. But coming back to Bishop Siaku, we used to have this game with each other a little bit. And he would say to me, Bob, and I'd go, yes? He goes, Bob, I want you to know that you, and this is going to sound a little harsh, but he had a smile on his face, and this is just how he was. He, he would say, Bob, you are the most stupidest person I've ever met in my life. <laughs> And, and I would play along and go, really, Bishop? Like, why, why are you saying that? He goes, because you're already fully enlightened and you just don't know it. <laughs> and we would play this a lot. And I've come to reflect upon this through the years. It's funny, just these powerful little statements. And, and it was in, in jest. But actually, I, I've come to understand that that I actually believe that he really saw that within me and with every single one of us is that potential to awaken. That's what he was trying to show me. And it's taking me years to understand that. So deep bows to my teachers, Bishop Nipo Siaku, who I'm very fond of. 
So sometimes someone can see something in you that you can't see, you don't see for yourself. But maybe in time it begins to sink in of our own sovereignty, our own beauty, our own heart. So this question remains about who are we and what is this? And that leads me to continue on with the story of the Buddha, Siddhartha Gautama, who having encountered these four heavenly messengers and realizing that he, he needed to go out into the forest and to practice meditation, to devote his life to understanding the meaning of life. And of course, none of his family, no, no, people didn't want him to go and stay here. His father begged him, I can promise you, I can give you anything. There's this, supposedly this touching conversation where Siddhartha said, all right, if, if you can grant me a few wishes, I'll stay. So the king was very excited because he had so much money and power and kingdoms and whatever. And, and Siddhartha said, prevent me from aging, prevent me from getting sick, prevent me from dying. And the king knew that he couldn't grant him this. And so it's said that he left the palace, shaved his head, put on monastic robes or rag robes, sadhu robes, and went into the forest. And he knew that his family would be well taken care of. And off he went to on this sojourn, this spiritual sojourn, to um, study with different meditation masters, to learn practices, to devote his life to understanding the meaning of life. And he was a very adept student, learned a lot and fairly quickly at times. Very prevalent in those days was the practices of concentration meditation. And he became... um, very, very skilled at developing concentration that would lead to absorption. And Pali, we speak about these as jhanas, these different stages of jhanas, eight in told. And Siddhartha became a master of these absorptions. And the result of doing these types of practices, concentration practices, is that there's a feeling that of happens of, of a wakefulness, of good energy in the body, oneness, stillness, calmness, tranquility, unification, one-pointedness. I mean, it sounds all pretty good. And he became a master of this. So much so that his teacher would say, well, you've learned everything that needs to be learned here, and why don't you stay, and, and we'll teach together. But Siddhartha realized even though he could calm his mind to a profound degree of absorption and unification, it was still beckoning with him, what is this life? And so he continued in his journeys and studied with other teachers, and they would often say similar things. You've learned everything that I've taught and come and share. Still, Siddhartha's yearning for deeper understanding was there, and then he had heard that there's possibly a way for this understanding to grow through self-mortification, the punishing of the body. 
And he came across five different ascetics that were practicing various self-mortification practices. And Siddhartha decided to do the practice of limiting his food intake over a period of time, gradually limiting, limiting it down to one grain of rice a day. That was his diet, one grain of rice. And so day after day, eating one grain of rice, gradually he became skeletal. He began to lose his energy. He began to realize that if he continued to go like this, he would die. That He was so skeletal. It's almost said you put your hand on your belly and almost feel your tailbone in the back. I mean, that's pretty skeletal. And he realized that this type of extreme measures of practice that it can't be helpful. There's got to be some type of a middle way. And so he bid farewell to these five ascetics that, you know, they probably had their own opinions about him, but he, he knew if he stayed longer he would die. And he, uh, somehow through some good fortune, we call it karma, um, he met this incredible woman named Sujata. And she saw this sadhu and saw how um, emaciated he was. And she said, I would, I would like, to, can I help you? I want to help support and get you nourished again and to take care. So just so selflessly, Sujata cared for Siddhartha, helping him to restore to good health, to thank Sujata deeply. After good health and feeling well again, Siddhartha bid farewell to Sujata and wanted to continue on his journey solo. And it said that he, as he traveled, he came across this beautiful tree that had a kind of a pastoral view, and he decided to take his seat underneath this tree. And he just began to reckon that he had been with so many different teachers and practiced so many different teachings that I think he felt to himself, I'm just going to stay here. No doubt there's wonderful teachings, but I've learned so much. I want to see with myself, with my own experience, and I'm going to take my seat underneath this tree, and I'll stay here till the skin falls off my bones. There's a sense of like deep resolution, deep commitment. He wanted to stay there. And so at this tree, he took his seat and he established himself in the practice and began to meditate. And it said that a memory arose inside him, a memory of when he was a a younger boy sitting underneath another tree on a very beautiful day. And it was like one of these days and that you... uh, 
we get these a lot where I live in California, a very beautiful place, sunny and just the right temperature. You, at times you can feel like you're at one with the world. And so there's this moment where Siddhartha was remembering as a boy sitting underneath this tree and just feeling the oneness of the world, just like even this day now as he's sitting underneath this tree. So there's this reminiscing of what arose from so many years ago and just connecting with that memory. And then supposedly, a little bit later, another memory arose that he had completely and entirely forgot about. When he was a boy, looking, you know, feeling that oneness of himself and the world, there was a pasture, there was a field, I should say, over to a side, and the memory was unfolding that he remembered like looking over at that area, and there was some farmers and an oxen and a plow. And perhaps because his sensitivity was so heightened, when he, he's recalling this memory of when the plow blade went into the earth, that sense of that sensitivity of things, he could almost hear the cries of the worms. And it was this moment where it kind of stung him, pierced him with the truth of heartbreak. And it's said that after recalling that memory, he just began to do his practice, developing his unification, getting more concentrated. But perhaps because of that memory of the plow blade, the sensitivity of those creatures inside crying, he, and he had never done this before, but rather than him going into complete absorption, he began to follow the breath and begin to penetrate the impermanent nature of the breath. The breath comes in, and goes out. So I want to just say here, this is one of the hallmarks of the difference between concentration meditation and then beginning to turn into insight meditation because in insight we're beginning to become mindful of the comings and goings. The births, the deaths, the ephemeral, the effervescent, the changing nature of things, penetrating the mark of impermanence. And he had never done that before, being mindful of the breath and experiencing the impermanent of the breath as it came in and out. And that shifted his practice to a profound degree. As he deepened and penetrated more into impermanence, this realization began to arise within him. The Buddha was awakening to this powerful realization of the truth of suffering or the truth of heartbreak or the truth of distress, the truth of that these hard things in life. And it's a, it was a very sobering and humbling realization to really, like, this is the truth. There is suffering. And in our small groups, we heard a lot of that today and yesterday. This truth. There was a mother that shared with us in the group the realization that one day her daughter's going to die.
It's powerful to take that in. may not be for a long time. But, you know, my mother says, oh, Bobby, it'll be a long, long time. Well, you know, what is a long time? But anyways, this truth, this truth of heartbreak, it's hard to even swallow. It's so sobering. It takes the air out of the tires. But the awakening Buddha was recognizing and acknowledging this truth. There is suffering. Just to say, um, there's more to come. <laughs> but it's a powerful and sobering thing to, st- to really recognize that. Birthing, aging, illness, things that don't go your way, difficult challenges. I mean, there's so many different types of distresses and anguish and anxiety and So, depression, sadness, shame, fear. So many things. I don't need to go into that, we know. And so after this realization, his, his practice continued with the breath in and out, penetrating in permanence. And then another realization began to happen because with this knowing of suffering, there was a deep internal, like, what is its causes? And as you stayed with this and experienced the breath coming in and out, some realization began to deeply arise at what the fundamental base cause of all suffering is unawareness or ignorance or delusion or not seeing clearly into the nature of things that gives rise to misconception, the belief perhaps that I can find happiness outside of me. My teacher, Venerable Tampulu Seto, he used to say, the midnight is dark and the new moon is dark the thickness of the forest at night is dark, but darkest of all is not knowing, is ignorance, is unawareness. This is why you used to always say, if you know, K-N-O-W, if you know, you can break the cycle of your suffering. If you don't know, you will go around and around that this is dependent origination. If you know, you can begin to break the cycle. But if you don't know, Around and around we go. So this awakening was beginning to understand that the causes of suffering is this unawareness. And it's often associated with the belief, the misconception that perhaps happiness can be found outside of us. I also want to just acknowledge that we as human beings, at least I'll say for me, I want to be happy. I don't want to have pain. And I think it's uh, pretty common with many of us, the the wanting to be happy and, you know, it's it's part of being human. And I think what the Buddha was, was asking, where is this happiness to be found? It's very, very interesting. Um, In... 
the word utopia is a Greek word. And actually, and you know, this thing, ah, I want to just get to utopia. I want to get to Shangri-La. I want to get to an oasis. I want to get to a place of rest. But in Greek, it's very interesting. The word utopia literally means nowhere. It's, that's really interesting, nowhere. But then, you know, you play with the English a little bit and sort the letters a little bit differently. It also says now, here. Ah, oh, maybe there's some clue inside nowhere. But the sense of wanting to get to paradise, to be home, to be safe, it's so human of us. I certainly like that. And it's interesting, even the word desire comes from the Latin root desidare, like it was what the stars will bring. Yet it's interesting, we come from the stars. We're made of atoms. Stars, supernovas, or atom factories. But so long as we continue to live with this belief that somehow happiness can be found outside of us, we may spin around and around and around and that this misunderstanding tricks us. It tricks us with the belief that some things outside can make us happy. And yeah, there's a lot of stuff out there that makes us happy. These things make you feel really good and want more. I have a very dear friend of mine who just passed her license to become a licensed clinical social worker. I'm so proud of her. And in her younger years, she was a heroin addict. And I remember one day having tea with her. And and I asked her, because I actually never experienced heroin, and I was curious, what, what does heroin feel like? She said, Bob, it's the best thing I have had in my life. And all I wanted to do was just inject it and inject it and inject it. And so that's what I did. I became an addict. And I just wanted to stay there, injecting more, injecting more. But I kept on coming down. That was the problem. I kept on coming down, but I have to inject again. But I kept on coming down. And she realized and got really scared, like she's going to die if she continues like this. And she got into rehab. She's now a Dharma teacher. She just passed her licensed clinical social work. I was just like, oh, my, my heart, what a journey she has had and such a beautiful, wise being. But I, I love like her description. Like I just wanted it again because you know you know that drive for us like to to lose ourselves into pleasure, to lose ourselves into whatever it is that we want to lose ourselves into, so we don't have to be here, or to be somewhere where it feels good. So you can understand that sense of uh, craving is strong because it feels good. Perhaps this is the root of addiction. It feels good. You want more. And I also just want to say that, that it's fair to say that in Buddhist psychology, craving is not considered, I guess I'd like to say in some ways, not like morally wrong, but it's just simply a cause of suffering. And why is that? It's because a craving keeps you wanting and wanting what you can't have. No matter how many injections you get, it's never enough. It keeps you wanting what you can't have. There's a yearning, there's a thirsting, there's a craving, there's a lusting, there's a clinging, this sense of wanting this, but it doesn't stay. It says in the Dharma, there's no fire hotter than greed, no ice colder than hatred, 
no fog thicker than ignorance. And yet due to these types of misconceptions, we get tricked, finding happiness here and there outside of ourselves and so forth. So the awakening Buddha was beginning to understand more and more about these causes of suffering. I'd like to read to you, I feel like a wonderful translation of the causes of suffering that uh, an English monk named Achan Amaro um, wrote some years ago. He goes, this is the noble truth of the cause of suffering and that it is craving that is compelling and intoxicating. Don't you know that one? Compelling and intoxicating. Anybody ever feel compelled? Yeah? Yeah. It's compelling and intoxicating. It feels good and it causes us to be born into things again and again. Ever seeking delight now here and now there. Namely, the craving for sensual delight, the craving to be something or someone, the craving to feel nothing. So I'd like to unpack this a little bit. So the first is this craving for sensual delight. It's like eros, the libidinal. It's, it's, uh, to, it's operative is to feel good, to lose myself into feeling good. And we can find that through many ways. You know, I mentioned about drugs. We can lose ourselves, of course, into sex, into shopping. I mean, Amazon, no joke. I don't work for Amazon, but like one click, you own it. And it's like, it sets off all these little opioids, and they're like, and it feels really good. You get an email, click. You get a text, click. It's like little juices, all happy. Except you read what the email or text said, and it's an unpleasant feeling tone. But... Um, but it's, it's so powerful, and Judd Brewer from Brown University, a neuroscientist, uh, he's really like, interested in the physiology, like what happens when you get an email? What happens when you click, you own it? And it feels good for a second, so that's tempting to, I want to do it again. I'm just going to spend some time shopping. You know, and food. Food is a, is a great thing, and I've shared this before a number of times, like, but I remember one time I was really studying this, that... Um, I was eating my favorite vegan ice cream many years ago, and I was just in the world of satiation. I was lost in pleasure. And everything was just going really, really well, till all of a sudden I saw I only had one bite left, and I didn't know what the hell to do with my life then. <laughs> what am I going to do? There was more ice cream in the freezer. I could go get some, but I didn't. But it's seductive because it feels so good. I just want to lose myself into the ice cream or lose myself into a lose myself into something so I don't have to be here. It's so strong. And I don't mean we can't have some of these things, but it's all in our relationship. This is a beautiful teaching by Achan Cha, the Thai forest meditation master. And he used to always give talks about clinging and suffering and all this stuff. And then one day he's giving a, a Dharma talk about how much he loves his teacup. <clears throat> and he's talking all about his teacup and how much he loves it. And some of the monastics and people started like, is he getting, losing some of his mind? What's going on? Finally, someone towards the end of the talk, after he said, I love my teacup for about the 20th time, 
said, Achan, I, you've taught us about clinging and suffering, and you, all you do is talk about how much you love your teacup. And he smiled and said, evidently, I do love my teacup, but I already know it's broken. And in the meantime, I'm going to enjoy. And so perhaps there is a way, like what is our wise relationship to these things? Like when you leave the retreat, you're going to email, boom, this <laughs> lost text, boom. I wish it was like a software thing where you can only get 10 at a time and you have to wait an hour for another 10. So any of you engineers out here create that, but no one will buy it, sorry. It's just, yeah. But how do we develop a relationship? I mean, we are wired for sensual pleasure through our body, our senses, but how do we work with these forces in a way that's wise? that we can enjoy. I love that. I, I enjoy this cup, but I already know it's broken. But there's other wise ways. So looking like, how do I do that? Because otherwise, it just goes on and on. As Kabir once said, friend, please tell me what I can do about this world that I hold on to, and it keeps on spinning out. I gave up sewn robes, and now I wear a robe, but then I noticed one day that the cloth was well woven, so I bought some burlap. I still throw it elegantly over my left shoulder, I pulled back my sexual longings and now I discover I'm angry a lot. I gave up rage and now I notice that I'm greedy all day. I worked hard at dissolving the greed and now I'm proud of myself. This poem never ends. (laughs) It just won't end. It'll never end. It'll never end. The power of this. This That's why it's so funny to say, but I I mean it. Um, The Rolling Stones had something going on. Like, I can't get no sort of satisfaction no matter how much I try and I try and I try. I just can't get no, no satisfaction. We, we hang out, we all sing it together in bars. I just can't get no We even commensurate, we laugh about it. We know the truth of this. Yeah, we keep on doing it. So interesting. Can't get no satisfaction. So it's again, what's my relationship to these? If there's a belief that somehow this is what's going to bring me to utopia, to Shangri-La, to paradise, we might want to investigate more. It's not these things are bad, but it's in our relationship. Can we begin to cultivate a wiser relationship? So I'm just touching upon these. So the next one is the the craving to be someone or something. It's rooted in narcissism and egocentricity. And it has both sides of inflation and deflation. I remember once in a meditation retreat many years ago, I looked outside and I saw some person doing the walking meditation and it was a beautiful sight to be seen. It was like a clipper ship in the ocean with majesty. The sails were just lifting and moving and placing. It was, I don't know, there was something about how the way that this person held themselves. It just was very beautiful to watch them do walking meditation. And during a, a discussion, later he, he shared, unbeknownst that I was even, that he didn't even know that I was looking at him, 
he said, I want to just share something really personal and vulnerable. Like I was out the other day, I was doing this walking meditation, and I looked around at all the meditators, and I realized I was the best walking meditator <laughs> in, the, in the whole retreat. That lasted one minute, one second, and then the next second was, I am the worst. How could I even think like this? What a crazy person I am to be so narcissistic. And so there's inflation and deflation. This is happening all the time. It's polar opposites, all connected to our narcissism, to our egocentricity. But it's based in the sense of deep insecurity. I have to impress you. I need your validation. I need your acknowledgement to know that I am whole because I don't know that for myself. very painful it's funny just what she should share a funny thing with me some years ago I I use Facebook from time to time I mentioned that I found my professor on Facebook and I might have put in a poem or something like that and then later I I there was like a little notification someone had clicked off like that was nice and then at a certain point, I looked down, there was like 199 likes. And so I thought to myself, it'd be nice to bag 200. <laughs> like, would 200 do it? <laughs> no, because then I wanted 201. I once told this to Dharma Talk, and I got a note on the board that said, Bob, I'm giving you an infinite like card. <laughs> it's never enough. But it was interesting just to watch my mind wanting that 200, even though I should know way better. But, well, I'll, and I won't be so hard on myself. Okay, whatever it is. But, but it's just interesting, the ploys of the mind, like as if this is going to verify that I'm okay. There's a country western song, again, speaking the Dharma, I'm looking for love in all the wrong places. I'm not looking in here. I'm looking outside. It's very sad. I mean, I know this within myself at times, just so much wanting to be seen, to be acknowledged, to be validated. And there's things that some perhaps happened to us early in life that we lost our own sovereignty and, it's, and, and it catapulted in us trying to look, to fit in, to get accepted by others, to be seen. Very blessed to have two grandsons. One is um, nine months, and the other is three and a half years old. And so I've been with them. Well, the three and a half year old, I've been with him since he was born. And, and of course, my youngest one, um, he's still the baby. And it's it's beautiful to revisit and to hang out with babies because. Babies, and I think we all know this, we were all babies once too. When we came into this world, we did not care what anyone else thought about us. If I had my grandson up here now and he had to do a bowel movement, he would just do it in front of you and he would <laughs> care less. He would fart, he would laugh, he would cry, he would vomit, and he doesn't care. And we wouldn't care either because we know he's a baby and he's just being baby. But if you saw me starting to do this, you might, have, you might be calling uh, 911. And, and, you know, like it's, it's like... 
but it's beautiful. Like we came in this way. What happened? Humiliation. Made to feel small. There was a thing growing up I used to hear. Children should be seen but not heard. Losing our sense of our sovereignty. So John Kabat-Zinn and Myla, his wife, they wrote a very beautiful book um, called Everyday Blessings, The Art of Mindful Parenting. And in it, they speak about... um, Three different qualities to honor children. And first is to have empathy for them, to have acceptance for them, and to honor their sovereign nature. And I love that they put that there. Because when we think about, like, children do come in sovereign. Maybe this is what Bishop Nipo Siaku saw. Like, we come in fully ourselves. And then, you know, we're all doing the best we can trying to raise our children and trying to help them to grow confident and so forth. But inevitably, at times we get smashed. We're made to feel small. I remember once working with a yogi saying, the only thing that I remember about what my mother would say to me was, I wish I never had you. Another very close friend of mine, he was tall, he was clumsy growing up. His mother had died from addiction. His father was a a military person and had a lot of impatience and actually had probably so much profound grief. But my friend was clumsy and and his father used to, you probably heard of the children's story, King Midas, everything you touch turns to gold. Well, his nickname was King Minus, everything you touch breaks. Like, say, like, wow, like, imagine like, just being told that. Or, you can't sing. You're not pretty. You're not beautiful. You, you're not a good athlete. You won't amount to anything. You're damaged goods. Like these messages that we get and internalize as we're growing up and we don't know any better, we're beginning to start our identification, our personality that gets reinforced. There's no coincidence that we're beginning to look elsewhere to try to find our, to, to let people have people tell us how wonderful we are because we've lost knowing that for ourselves. Again, born out of a sense of unawareness. But it's helpful for us to know that we didn't come in this way. And actually, another thing that's true about when we didn't come this way we came in with no prejudice, no bias towards color of skin, of race, of sexual orientation, gender identification, political affiliation. Um, I mean, these is all learned. It's powerful to reflect upon that. It was all learned. If there can be good news, and there is at least as far as a possible antidote, is that as we grow with more awareness, so I, um, Francisco and I, we were talking about that, my, you know, awareness is going to save, like if we don't have awareness, the world's going to go down. Like with awareness, at least we can begin to see what it is that we're dealing with. With awareness, we can begin to see that I'm carrying around all this bias and prejudice that I didn't even know that I had. And I can begin to potentially, in time, unlearn what I learned or begin to make it a practice to unlearn what I've learned because it's all learned and you know in so many different ways I remember with my friend I was in China we went went to the the Great Wall of China and and he was telling me inside the wall civilization outside of the wall 
barbarians. I come from Boston. We don't like New York Yankees. New York folks don't like Boston. I mean, like this basic, what we call basic ethnocentrism. Wherever I am is the center of the world, and everyone else is not made. They're different. And that difference scares us at times. All learned. Isn't that powerful? Like all the prejudice, everything was learned. You get a, a bunch of babies in a room, no matter of their ethnicity or color, whatever, they're all just crawling and playing and, you know, crying and doing their things. All learned. But the gift of our awareness is we can begin to wake up and see what it is that we learn, and it can be really shocking. I know it's been shocking personally for me to see, oh, I am biased. I, am, I have fear. I have opinions. I have privilege. Very humbling. Things you just can just walk in and just assume. And be comfortable where others may not feel comfortable at all. It's a different space. So this practice of awareness is so important. With the practice of awareness, we can begin to become aware of our embedded conditioning that is so deep inside. But as we become aware, we can begin to begin to become aware of what we're all entangled about, and perhaps gradually and slowly, remembering and forgetting, beginning to untangle that tangle, but it will involve awareness. And Margaret Wheatley writes, I know that we notice what we notice because of who we are, and we create ourselves by what we choose to notice. And once this work of self-authorship has begun, we inhabit the world we have created and we self-seal. And we don't notice anything else except those things that confirm what we already think about who we already are. But when we succeed in moving outside of our normal processes of self-reference and can begin to look upon ourselves with self-awareness, then we have a chance of changing. We can break the seal. We can notice something new. So this process of self-reference to self-awareness. Otherwise, we get locked in. I was reminded of the Popeye the Sailor song, I am what I am, and that's the way I am on Popeye the Sailor Man. Which is good. At least he's expressing his autonomy, but the, the other side, it's just like, doesn't see anything else. One of my first spiritual teachers was Rod Serling from the Twilight Zone. And um, there's one episode that just has haunted me my whole life. It's a picture of, it's about this guy that has kind of this angry mug, and he's always got an opinion about everything and everyone, and if, if everyone would just be like me, the world would be a better place. And like, It's a 30-minute show, and for like 25 of those minutes, he's just, you just see him, just, if everyone would just be like me. Then the, the last scene is him going to sleep, 
And then in the morning, he wakes up and he starts going out into the world and everybody's got a face like his and acts like, eh, eh, you just be like me. And then you hear, the, that's the end of the show. Do, 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 Lizette. <laughs> like, your, your nightmares come true. Like, everyone's just like you. We're so fixed in this conditioning. And this is one of the most radical teachings of awakening. When the Buddha experienced the unconditioned, how could he know about the un- how could he experience the unconditioned if he didn't see through all the conditioning? And what is the conditioning? Our stories, our narratives, our beliefs, our identifications, beginning to see through these. The awakening. Seeing through these embedded conditionings that continue the wheel of suffering. So this last is the craving to feel nothing. Thanatos. The death instinct. Annihilation. Rooted in the belief that I can just bury my pain, I can just go away. Numbing. Disassociating. Disconnecting. Yeah, there's drugs, alcohol, TV. I mean, we just lose ourselves into puzzles. There's, I mean, thousands of ways to to not be here, this craving to feel nothing. And, you know, I, I you know, heard about this teaching and a number of years ago I had an inner experience of what that meant because I didn't quite, I didn't have an inner experience of it. And fortunately everything is okay, but there was a, a time where it was not clear whether my son had um, cancer. It turned out he didn't. But during that time, it was quite remarkable. All I wanted to do was sleep because it was so painful to be awake. And I remember getting up and I'd be okay for a moment, then all of a sudden, ugh, oh, I just, I just want to go back to sleep. And like, then it was like, oh, this is what the Buddha was talking about. This, the, it, it, was, it, was, it was like a craving. Like, I wanted to just go back to sleep. I did not want to be here. And it's powerful. And then I began to realize, like, wow, there's a, quite a lot of different places in my life. I'm beginning to see this I, more how I lose myself into this and to that so I don't have to be here and feel this and that. So it made deeper sense to me. Since I'm giving theme songs with the Rolling Stones and the country western and looking for love in all the wrong places. I had to find one for this. And so it's from Simon and Garfunkel. I'm a rock, I'm an island, and I feel no pain. A rock feels no pain, an island never cries. So they're craving to feel nothing. And it's quite extraordinary to me that nearly 2,600 years ago, Siddhartha was awakening to have this understanding of these. It's, it's really profound and it feels at least in my life so relevant and I trust in, in, in many of ours our practice of awakening is to begin to see through these stories these wants and not wants that this possibility and this is like the third realization is to realize that there's a way to gain peace by the lessening of these cravings and 
particularly the spelling of unawareness. And there's a path, a way we can follow to help work with our mind and our hearts, which we're embarking upon here and now. I'm not going to go a lot into that because I've been talking for a while. And so I just want to acknowledge with us, as I mentioned this earlier about this, you know, wanting to, to feel good that is so human, wanting to be connected. And, you know, when you think of it, we came, we, we were connected literally, and there's a remnant right here in my belly button of an umbilical cord that was connected to my mother. And then we all got too big. <laughs> we, we had to get out. <laughs> but, we, but there was like this sense of connection. Really, we were connected. And then there's that powerful moment when that cord is cut. Every one of us, we have the, the remnant here. And perhaps it's like we're journeying our way home and it's not back in our mother's womb. Too big for that. Where is home? Where is happiness? Where is peace? Is it inside? Is it outside? This is, I think, the liberating awakening of the Buddha. And it's interesting when we think about coming home or being connected. And it, there's a story of Ramana Maharshi of wonderful, powerful yogi teacher in, in India who passed away in the 50s. And it was said that um, some of his students, he was dying of cancer, and, and some of his students were saying, please don't go, Maharaj, please don't go. And evidently he opened his eyes in astonishment and said, where am I going? <laughs> That's kind of amazing to be able to say that on your deathbed. Where am I going? And of course... We've known just you know fairly recently in the last few years when Thich Nhat Hanh died and people asked him, you know, like, if you want to find me, look at the clouds. Look at the grass. There's a beautiful poem. I don't have it with me here right now, but it's called It Is Enough. And she says that, you know, that this body, that when it begins to break up, what if some of these atoms become part of a wing of a chickadee? and to feel the flight through the air. Some of these atoms might become a broccoli. Or some of these atoms might freeze and thaw with the waters. Some of these atoms might drift up and up into space, stardust from whence it came. And she goes on to say, it's enough to know that so long as there's a universe, we're part of it. But we don't know it's the mystery. But again, coming back, can we align with wisdom and love? Wisdom and love. I'll end with a story of um, a teacher, Lainditsero, and he's really my, like a father to me. I was his student for 25 years until he passed the age of 98. 
And um, just to say a little bit about Seto, um, <laughs> he's kind of like the opposite of narcissism and egocentricity. Like if, and, and, you know, I definitely have met some teachers that just their presence kind of attracts like, like, like this type of a charisma. But you have to imagine Lion DeSeto is like kind of the opposite. So if you went into a room and there was a lamp and a chair, you might see the lamp and the chair first before you saw him. It was kind of like this opposite type of thing. Till one day, I like, who is this guy? It's like it's so unassuming. We go out on house chance. He'd never assumed that he would. He's like the head monk that he should be sitting in the front seat. He would always go to the back, and they'd have to go move him into the front. He's just so, just utterly humble and utterly content. He'd be fine just to sit in his room and not go anywhere. I had the opportunity because I lived with him for a number of years. Help! I was his like attendant in the monastery, and um, I asked him a lot of questions. And my wife and friends gifted me with an opportunity to go to Burma. He traveled back. He went back to his monastery in Burma. he was in his 90s then, and, and um, they gifted me to, to see him, which was such an incredible gift. I'm so grateful. And it was actually when I went there, it was the last time that I, I saw him. And um, it was the last night, and I was um, going to be leaving the next morning back to San Francisco. And I was sitting with him, and then I realized I had one more question because he was in his, uh, you know, early nineties, and there was one more question I wanted to ask him. So I, I said, "Seto, um, you're you're in your early nineties. You've already exceeded the human lifespan average, anyways. And you know, I hope you live for a thousand years. But um, you've been a monk." He be, he became a, a a monk at the age of twenty because that's when you can get on the robes at that point. Before that, he was a novice monk since he was like eight years old. So he'd been in the robes for 70, over 75 years or something like that. Maybe more. I have to do the math. I have to get out my calculator. Long time. And he was a, also a deep meditator. And so I, I said, Seto, you know, you're old, and um, what are you going to do when death comes knocking at your door, because, you know, I mean, I know we all can die at any point, but, you know, you're old and you're being a meditator, what are you going to do? And so he looked at me for quite a while, and then I saw his cheek go up and down, and I lived with him for many years, and I knew when the cheek goes up and down, something he's going to say might not be so good, <laughs> or surprise me in some way. And... um Anyways, he, he said, Bob, are you afraid to die? And it kind of caught me off guard because I didn't ask him that. I want to know what he's going to do <laughs> when, when death comes to him. And he's asking me, well, and, he, and he looked at me and he goes, you need to meditate more. <laughs> I said, that's right, Seattle. And it's, it's true. <laughs> so we, we sat with that for a while. and um, And then... I asked him the question again. <laughs> what are you going to do? 
I, as I said, I know you have to meditate, but what are you going to do? And he paused, and then he said something to me that I'll never forget, and passing it on to you all as well. He said, when I'm dying, if I smell something, I'll be aware of smelling. If I see or taste something, I'll be aware of seeing and tasting. If I hear something, I'll be aware of hearing. If I feel something, I'll be aware of feeling. If I'm having thoughts and emotions, I'll be aware that I have thoughts and emotions. This is how I'll die. This is how I want you to die. Very powerful teaching. I remember once telling my 100-year-old grandmother that came over the boat from Russia, and I was sharing with her that story, and she... I don't think did any formal type of meditation, but she said, Bobby, that's a pretty good idea. Like, it's like she could get that at 100 years old, that that would be good to die mindfully. I love that. To die with awareness, to die with love. May love and awareness and wisdom see us through and through and through and through. And again, unified in this way, dissolving all fear, all hatred, all separation. So let's just sit for a few moments. And we'll do a little bit of a practice that I learned from um, Tampulusero. It's also his teaching on awakening and a good practice to die with. And it coincides with the breath in and the breath out. And so what he would say is, breathing in, craving is leaving, and breathing out, craving is gone. So you just try that. Breathing in and breathing out, the ending of craving. In, these, in this particular moment, in this particular breath. We don't have to worry about next. But for right now, as you breathe in and breathe out, the ending of craving. And the breathing in and breathing out, the lessening and ending of hatred. Experiencing what this moment is like with the lessening and the ending of hatred in the heart or anger, aversion. And breathing in and breathing out, the lessening, the ending of ignorance, of unawareness, the knowing that you're breathing in as you're breathing in, the knowing that you're breathing out as you're breathing out. Clarity. And in its place with the ending of craving, as you continue to breathe in and out, gives rise to contentment. The ending of hatred gives rise to love. But the ending of ignorance gives rise to understanding that the causes of all suffering is these cravings and hatreds and not seeing clearly into the nature of things. These are moments of freedom 
an awakening that is accessible to every one of us with these breaths to experience right now. The taste of freedom, contentment, the open heart, and deep understanding. May all beings be with peace. So thank you for your attention. I realize I've gone a little bit over, so a little bit of stretching and moving, and we'll come back for a little bit of some loving kindness and further practice. Thank you.